Well, this evening we're looking uh, at the book of Micah. And Micah was a prophet who lived in turbulent times. During his time as a prophet, around 750 to 700 or so years before Christ, something awful swept across the known world. It wasn't a virus or anything like that, it was the mighty Assyrian Empire, based in the area around modern-day Iraq, southeastern Turkey, that sort of area of the world. Its capital was Nineveh, which we looked at only a few weeks ago when we looked at Jonah. Uh, that was the capital of the Assyrian Empire where they had uh, their government. And they conquered country after country after country, including part of God's people, the northern tribe of Israel. The northern kingdom was formed when God's people split into two groups around 250 years before this. Ten tribes to the north became a kingdom under various kings, and they kept the name Israel. And the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, to the south, formed another kingdom, with the descendants of King David as their king. And during Micah's ministry, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, they were conquered and deported. They were sent off to the far corners of the Assyrian Empire, all across the Middle East. Assyrians were then brought into the place to replace them. And they later on became called Samaritans, because their capital was Samaria. It's as if, if you imagine like a big world power like China, if they invaded North Korea and then deported all of the, the people in North Korea off to different cities all across China, it'd be a bit like that. And then South Korea remains, and it's sort of looking scary because China's just invaded the northern bits. That would be the sort of situation that we're speaking about here. Micah isn't in the northern kingdom, he's in Judah in the south. So he's just seeing this all happen as he's prophesying. Judah wasn't conquered by the Assyrians, but in Micah's time it was invaded. They had a go at at taking it, and some of its towns were taken over by Assyria, including the hometown of Micah, Moresheth, which was some way out from the capital. And Micah is prophesying in this sort of difficult situation. He served under three kings of Judah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And even that was a bit of a mixed bag, really, of of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Though actually, in order, really, it should be the ugly, the bad, and the good. Jotham was okay, but he left some of the, the high places of idolatry on the hilltops. Ahaz was a disaster. He burnt his own son as an offering to another god, and worshipped on those high places on the hilltops. He set up high places in the towns of Judah, and during his day, Syria and Israel invaded Judah and besieged Jerusalem. Ahaz used the gold from the temple to pay the king of Assyria to come and help them. And that's what brought Assyria originally into the region. He was not a good guy. He got rid of the altar in the temple and replaced it with a knockoff one that he's seen in Damascus. He was a real piece of work. And Micah had to prophesy into that situation. Hezekiah was much better and reversed much of what Ahaz had done, but again was besieged by once friendly Assyria. A lot happens during Micah's time. There were really turbulent times where all sorts of things were were going on. And so his messages, as we go through, there's there's going to be a real mixture of messages. It feels a bit, I've been trying to sort of do the different prophets a little bit differently. If you imagine Micah, his is a bit of a roller coaster. It sort of goes up and down all the way through the book. From judgment to hope, judgment to hope, as the situation changes. 
And they sort of alternate and make the book feel like a real ride on a roller coaster as you go through. So we're going to follow that ride uh, through the book. I've nicked my titles this week of Dale Ralph Davis, uh, just for full disclosure. Uh, but first of all, we see from judgment to preservation. From judgment to preservation, that's this first sort of like roller coaster ride. First of all, in, in the beginning of Jonah, we see judgment, a huge dip down, if you like, as Micah tells the people that God is coming. God is coming. And you might think, well, that sounds really exciting, that sounds wonderful, isn't that what we want? But actually, Mike is telling them that he's coming against them. He's going to be a witness in court against them. And he pictures the whole thing like a courtroom with God, the judge, about to step down and act in judgment on his people. And the prophet laments what's happening in his nation, noting in vivid imagery that the infection, the wound of the northern kingdom has reached even the gate of Jerusalem. He's saying that it's like they've become infected with what's happened in the north. During this time, many places in Judah will be attacked and taken by the Assyrians, almost like they're encroaching in their land. And he lists places not to speak of in chapter 1 uh, because of what's happening. You know, verse 10, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all, in Bethel, Aphra, roll away, uh, roll yourselves in the dust. He sort of goes to all these places that would be attacked and he lists them. And he, he sort of plays on words as he goes through. So it might be a bit like we might say, you know, uh, in Hammersmith they will be hammered. In Huddersfield it will be colour fields. It's that idea as he sort of goes through all these towns and tells them they're coming destruction. In chapter 2 he begins then to explain why this is happening. Why is it that they're being attacked by the Assyrians? And he tells them that people have been taking advantage of others and buying up one another's land. Under Jewish law, the land had to revert to its original owner after a number of years. But seemingly during this time, it's not happening. People are just hanging on to it. But God warns in chapter 2 that the land grabbers are about to have their land grabbed. The Assyrians are going to come and, and take it from them. They've also been exploiting people into poverty. They're not quite taking the shirts off their backs, but they're taking their cloaks, even. It's likely to do with taking their robe as a guarantee against the loan, and then keeping it. We actually read about this very law in Exodus only a few weeks ago, and they were not allowed to do it. They're not allowed to keep the cloak of someone, because they would need it to sleep. They're also exploiting vulnerable women and evicting them from their homes. They were living in pleasant houses... But now they've been evicted by these unscrupulous land grabbers and money lenders. And God sums it up at the, at verse 9 uh, of chapter 2. It says this, The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, and their children you take away, uh, from, sorry, from their children you take away my splendour forever. It's not the splendid robe that they've taken so much, it's not the splendid house that they've taken. God really sees what's happening. It's the splendour of the Lord that they're taking away. It's his glory that they're really robbing as they do this. But the people in this chapter don't like hearing this. They want him to stop preaching about this. They want someone who will preach something nice. Or, you know, just blurt out some nonsense rather than actually challenging them with their sin. Or if you read further down, they want people who will preach in verse 11 about strong wine and drink. 
Because that's much more cheerful to talk about, isn't it? And rather than sin and judgment. But of course, there's nothing new under the sun, is it? It still happens today. People want to hear what their itching ears want to hear, rather than be confronted with the truth. So God promises them, uh, in verse uh, in 1 verse 16, that they're going into exile. Judgment is coming for them. Just as God has taken the northern kingdom, he's going to take them to even Jerusalem. That's the sort of judgmenty bit, the sort of dip in the roller coaster. Is there no hope? No, there is hope. Have a look at uh, 2, 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. The king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This is the high point, or one of the high points on the roller coaster. The people will be preserved. And although they're going into exile, God promises that after that he will gather them. He will bring them home. That word gathering in the Bible is, is what we have with the word church. It's the gathering together of people. As a shepherd gathers his sheep. As a conqueror leads the way uh, with his troops through the breach in the wall. He will send them into exile, yes. But he will also bring them back to their place. So there is hope. And just when you think, thinking, alright, it's turning cheerful now, it's all good. We go on the second wave of the roller coaster. And we start again with judgment, and this time three to peace, from chapters three to five. So in chapter three, we go back down to the bottom of the roller coaster again. And God accuses them and their rulers of figuratively of cannibalism. It's a pretty graphic, nasty chapter, really, in that sense. He talks about them tearing up the flesh of the people, chewing them up and spitting them out. The prophets, he says, are lying to the people, crying, peace, peace, when peace will not come. God will hide his face from them. They'll receive no vision. Micah, on the other hand, reminds us that he is filled with the spirit of the Lord. And again, that sounds quite positive, but what is he filled with the spirit of the Lord for? Well, he tells us he's filled with the spirit of the Lord to declare to them their sin and transgression. He's there to tell them what it is that they're doing wrong. That's there in verse 8. But as to me, I'm filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. He goes on to accuse the leaders and the priests and the prophets of taking bribes, teaching what people want for money, giving judgments in court for cash. So he promises that Jerusalem itself will be ransacked. Zion will be decimated in judgment for what the people are doing. Back down at the bottom of the roller coaster. But, then we go back up again, chapters 4 to 5, bring us hope. He goes on to say in verse 1, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come. The mountain that was decimated, he just promised to destroy Zion. But that mountain that was decimated will become a beacon that the nations will come to. 
This is the chapter where war will be no more. Swords beaten into plowshares. Spears into pruning hooks. And you get that lovely picture of everyone sitting under their own vine and their own fig tree. It's like that, I always imagine it's a bit like fishing. You know, you sort of just sat there relaxing under your, well, probably you can't fish under a fig tree. But, you know, the picture is that sort of picture of rest and peace. God will bring them back. Bring back the outcasts, he says, the lame, the afflicted. And do you know what? They will make up his people. They're the people that he's bringing home. And on that theme, God will raise up for them a leader in chapter 5, from one of the smallest places in the place, Bethlehem. We think of Bethlehem as a big place, I think, in our heads. We sort of go, little town, but we think, you know, little town must be pretty big. But apparently it's no no bigger than Western, in between uh, Ilkley and Otley. Tiny little place. Which is why it's such a surprise that this great ruler would come from there. But of course the ruler's already come from there. He's David. And a new David here will come and shepherd his sheep. I sort of miss this because we only get this at Christmas, don't we, these verses in chapter 5. About, but you, O Bethlehem, are you too little among the tribes of Judah? For from you shall come to, uh, forth to me one who is ruler in Israel. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. It's talking about Jesus, but it's picturing him as a new David. One who will come and give them victory over their enemies. Who will bring them peace. And again, he talks of war being no more. Idolatry being no more. Sorcerers being no more. And the nations who have oppressed his people will be judged. And here at the top of the roller coaster, if you like, we get this marvellous view of Christ. It's telling us about the Lord Jesus, the new David, born in Bethlehem, destined to rule the nations, who will be that beacon that all the nations will come to. And again, you think, this is great. We've got to the high point of the roller coaster, and then it goes back down again. Uh, Last wave of judgment. Judgment to pardon in chapters 6 and 7. We're back in the courtroom in chapter 6, verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. God here is taking his people to court, so to speak. What are the charges? Well, the people bring sacrifices. It sounds like they're doing the right things, but they don't actually do what is right. And it goes back to what Richard was reading earlier. They know what to do. So verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? What most people miss is the bit before. What do they actually think God requires of them? What do they think about worship? Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now think of this in terms of Ahaz, who did give his son in sacrifice, thinking that he was pleasing some god. They think worship is about that, about sort of child sacrifice and just doing the the right thing in terms of bringing the right sacrifices at the right time. But they've completely forgotten about justice and kindness and humility. They haven't got a clue about what they should be doing, even though they should know. The land, we're told, is full of violence, deceit, and idolatry. 
So God tells them that he will frustrate them. Eating, they will eat, but they will never be satisfied. Stockpiling, but they'll find that what they've stockpiled is spoiled. Reaping, but not sowing. It's going to get pretty awful in the land before Babylon finally arrives and finishes off what the Assyrians started and actually takes them into exile. It paints an awful picture of what will happen to the nation. But again, from verse 7 of chapter 7, there is hope. Micah will wait for the Lord. Have a look at verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I will look upon his vindication. Micah will wait for the Lord. And even though it looks like he's fallen, he'll rise. Even though he sits in darkness along with everybody else, the Lord will be his light in the darkness. He looks forward to when the kingdom will be extended. He goes on even further. He talks about when they'll come from Assyria, from Egypt, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. When God will do marvellous things, like at the Exodus. When God will pardon their iniquity. Have a look at verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. What a wonderful picture there. He will cast their sins into the depths of the sea. We've seen, haven't we, in the last few weeks how hard it is to even look for things down at the bottom of the sea. They're not coming back. He will tread our sins underfoot like he tread a serpent in the rest of the Old Testament. And he will be faithful to his people as he always has been. And of course we see the fulfilment of this, don't we? People coming from the ends of the earth to join with his people. Pardoned for sin by an Exodus scale miracle. Jesus redeemed his people by shedding his blood. The Lamb of God was slain for the redemption of his people. And the hope that we see in Micah has begun in Christ. And it will be consummated when he returns. But also it's worth pointing out the judgment that's pointed to here will as well. Whilst for some the return of Jesus spells the beginning of eternal glory, for others it spells eternal doom and torment. And that's pictured here in the punishment that we see. And we need to keep both in mind as we live in our time. There is both judgment and hope. There is both locust and honey. And the time that we have now determines our ending. As believers, we hold the message of hope and the warning of judgment that we bring to the world. We are, in fact, a message of hope and a warning of judgment to the world. 2 Corinthians 2 14 to 16 says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for such things? As we preach Christ and live out his message in our world, we smell to some of life, and we smell to others of death. And it depends on their response to the message. The message being the gospel, which has both those elements in it, doesn't it? The judgment of God, but also then the hope, the rescue from that judgment. The irony is that if we miss out the warning of judgment, we won't be making our message smell more of life. We'll actually end up with a message that won't bring life at all. We risk actually making it deadly. A message that requires no response of repentance, and that actually leaves us where we are in mortal danger. A message of death masked by fake potpourri of religiosity or niceness. Of course, it's equally true we need to not miss out the hope. That really will make the message a message of death, won't it? Reminds me of Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress as he stands paralysed before the hill that Mr. Worldly Wiseman has sent him to. He's struck by law and judgment, but there's no hope. Until Evangelist comes along to help him out with the gospel. If you've not read Pilgrim's Progress, you really need to read Pilgrim's Progress. It's very worth it. But just judgment is no use, is it? Not in turbulent times as well. It might be tempting as we look out into our world just to condemn. But we're in the world so that we might see people saved. So in the turbulent times that we live in, that we've seen over the past years, months, decades, let's hold out both sides as Micah does. The message of hope, and the warning of judgment. Let's teach the whole counsel of God and look to that one born in Bethlehem whose origins are of old and put our trust in him to get us through. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for all the wonderful ways this book points to the Lord Jesus. Father, we confess that just like the Israelites, we have done things that are deserving of punishment. But Father, thank you that you have cast our sins into the sea. You've trodden them underfoot. Father, help us to believe that. Help us to trust in that. Help us to live that out day by day as we put our trust in Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.